all the feels on this one. Because that's what the science says. Welcome to The Whole View. I'm Stacey Toth of Real Everything. I'm all about loving the skin you're in and being healthy inside and out. Let's talk about what this looks like in real life. Facts do not have opinions. And I'm Dr. Sarah Ballantyne of thepaleomom.com. I believe that scientific literacy is the key to improving public health. Just don't let perfection be the enemy of the good. Science is true whether or not you believe in it. Self-love is really about self-respect and acceptance. Welcome back to episode 468 of The Whole View. That's going to be a doozy. I'm just going to tell you. <laughs> not as much as last week, but I I also know this topic is a can of worms. So you've already seen the name of the show. Um, it's not the first time that we're going to be talking about um, blood sugar in general. How about that? How many times do you think we've talked about blood sugar? Almost as many as vegetables? I mean, it's probably the second most. It's so tangential to a lot of the things that we talk about because regulated blood sugars are so fundamental to health and proper immune function and all of those things that I think, you know, really tackling it head on like this. I don't know that we've done that that many times, but I think that it's one of those topics that we end up talking about even when it's not the intention. So it's kind of nice actually to dedicate a whole show to exploring this topic in a way that's very different than how it is typically discussed in sort of health conscious communities in general. I had a revelation on our Patreon from episode 467 to episodes ago where we were talking about moderating sugar and how that fits into a healthy lifestyle. And I wished that I had come up with it for the main show. So let me just, I'm going to (laughs) reshare. And these are the kinds of nuggets you're missing over (laughs) on Patreon. Um, That I feel like sugar has become to today's diet culture what fat was in the 80s. And when I think about it from that perspective, it helps me understand a little bit more about why completely removing anything is not a positive effect the way that we thought about it with fat, right? Like we were, we were convinced that going fat free in the eighties was the solution to our health woes. And I'm kind of able to finally take a step back a little bit and see that we're doing the same sort of thing with sugar. And it's not to say that making sure that you're using quality fats isn't important to your health and making sure that you're not going, oh, I was looking for a pun, but hog wild is not, it's not, it's not quite it's not, there. It's not quite. It would have been, it would have been a pun if we'd talked about the healthy fats. If we if it had just come like a sentence earlier, then it could have, anyways, mm. I know what you're saying. Okay. We don't go all in on all the sugar. <laughs> right. Um, anyway, so it's, it's difficult to sell moderation though, isn't it? It's difficult to make a bar or sell you a plan around moderation. And um, I will be the first to say that this is a struggle that I have. This is a struggle that I've had since I was a kid. And I do think, mom, I love you. It goes back to the rice cereal that was put in my bottle as 
a wee babe, um, weeks old, and how my body learned to want refined carbohydrates. And um, it is a fight that I am constantly having with myself, and I wish that I wasn't. And I, I will say that the lifestyle factors are things that help me focus on my health and prioritizing my health versus thinking about it from the perspective of, oh, you shouldn't do that because your weight. And that's what I really like about the way that we're going to talk about this show is getting into the science. But also you have my anecdote at the top that I hope helps frame it a little for you. <laughs> we're going to get I into also, the science. Go ahead. I also think that there's this phrase I've I've seen it a few times lately. And I feel like it's one of those phrases that uh, sort of ebbs and flows in popularity, but the idea that you can't outrun a bad diet, meaning that there's no amount of exercise that is going to make you healthy if you're not eating healthy foods. I think that the point of this show is that the reverse is also true, that you can't out-healthy diet an unhealthy lifestyle. And I hope that that is the, the main takeaway. This is one very narrow way of looking at the benefits of lifestyle, um, but I think that that, that is again, sort of like the main, the main point here is working on health requires more than just healthy diet. It also requires getting enough sleep and actively managing stress and living an active lifestyle and seeking out community. And what we're going to talk about today is how those lifestyle factors influence insulin sensitivity in a way that may be bigger than diet. And that is that is where I think we are differing in terms of how we're going to talk about this research from how insulin regulation is very typically presented. It's typically presented as, you know, if you eat a lot of sugar, you make yourself insulin resistant. And if that insulin resistance gets bad enough, then you have diabetes. And it also helps to propagate blame and diet culture at the same time as not recognizing how multifaceted insulin regulation and blood sugar regulation actually are and how important lifestyle is into that equation. And the reason why that's so important is when we give people, you know, at your, let's say someone gets diagnosed with prediabetes um, and we give them these, here's, here's the things to do to avoid diabetes. It's typically very simplistic, right? Lose weight, eat, you know, cut out carbs and sugar, um, and maybe you'll get told to exercise. And meanwhile, you know, as we're going to get into it, exercise is certainly important for insulin regulation, but it's not the only lifestyle factor. I do think that it's super important. I think one of the things that, you know, I asked for the show was to dive into that because right before we recorded the last episode on this 467, I had also read an article and we ended up talking about it a little and we'll talk about it a lot today um, that talked about the impact of sleep and mm -hmm. um, I heard from so many diabetic individuals both type 1 and type 2 who expressed how vastly their um, results were when they were properly sleeping versus not properly sleeping and how how it affected what they needed to do from a medication perspective and I, I think it's it's sad that the lexicon around all of this is always food. And like the doctor doesn't say, 
how are you sleeping most of the time, at least? I don't know. Mental health professionals ask. I've never had a doctor ask me that. Right? And I think, like, you need to bring that up oftentimes if you're, if you identify that you have sleep issues, but why is that not one of the first questions, right? Because it's it's so telling about so many other things that are happening in our body. So anyway, I, got, I'm i sure I'm going to get on other soapboxes, but I want to let you jump in because I know I have a lot to discuss. So ready to take on the science? Uh, I, I'm always ready. What are you talking about? Of course I am. <laughs> I was like, what was that pause there? <laughs> Um, so let's have a brief review just about like how insulin works. I mean, we did cover, um, what happens when we consume too much sugar, especially when we're insulin resistant again, just two episodes ago in 467. Um, but I think to, to go into this conversation about how lifestyle influences insulin sensitivity helps to just have a baseline understanding of how insulin actually does its thing. So insulin is produced in a type of cell called a beta cell residing in the islets of Langerhans in the pancreas. Um, and that is, I mean, it's one of the pancreas's main jobs is to produce insulin. Um, and they're stored inside the cell in these little um, like bubbles inside the cell called insulin granules um, until that cell gets the signal that blood sugar levels have risen. And then that insulin can be um, secreted into the bloodstream very, very quickly. So that is triggered when we consume carbohydrates. So starches break down into glucose. And of course, most sugars break down um, at least into half glucose, right? Sucrose is half glucose, half fructose. So when uh, we have that rise in serum glucose, that then triggers, uh, there's actually a couple of different mechanisms. So there's a really fast mechanism for that um, insulin release to be stimulated um, by the pancreas. And then there's also a, a slower mechanism. So that's how we can get kind of like that quick, aha, there's lots of sugar, let's deal with this right away. Um, then insulin helps to shuttle those sugar molecules inside cells, especially in the liver, but also muscle tissues right all over the body, where that sugar molecule, as we discussed two episodes ago, then gets used in the cellular respiration process, also called the Krebs cycle or the citric acid cycle, to make the energy currency molecule of all cells called adenosine triphosphate. So where insulin is really important is what it does is when insulin's in the bloodstream, which it is released in the bloodstream when the pancreas goes, ah, blood sugar's too high, um, it binds with receptors in the cell, um, very intuitively called insulin receptors. And then that triggers what's called a signal cascade. It basically means just a bunch of different steps of chemical reactions where the end result is um, the what's called the sort of... Um, cellular transport of a, a molecule called the GLUT4 transport protein. GLUT4 is the, 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 basically the channel that helps to bring glucose from the blood inside the cell. So what insulin does is it basically makes sure that GLUT4 goes from inside the cell to embedded into the cell membrane. That translocation basically allows GLUT4 to do its job to bring glucose inside the cell. The problem with insulin resistance is, um, as we talked about two episodes ago, is high blood sugars drive the production of reactive oxygen species, which drives inflammation and oxidative damage. Um, high insulin by itself is also inflammatory. And the way we get to insulin resistance is typically the sort of the standard model is 
that chronically elevated blood sugar levels, however those happen, uh, stimulate an adaptation within the cells. Um, so the cells basically go, we cannot be bringing this much sugar into this. This is, this is you know, not, not good for us. Um, and what they do is they adapt by what's called down-regulating the insulin receptors. So they have fewer receptors to get triggered by binding with insulin so that it stops as many GLUT4 transport proteins from being embedded in the cell membrane. When that starts to happen, that's called insulin resistance or loss of insulin sensitivity. Each cell is literally less sensitive to insulin because it is downregulating the number of insulin receptors. There's also some types of adaptations that can happen in that cell signaling cascade after insulin binds with its receptor. So there's some other ways that the cell can basically suppress how much GLUT4 is being transported to the, the cell membrane in response to insulin signaling, insulin doing its job binding with its receptor. When you get to the point where blood sugar levels can no longer be kept in a normal range, that's when we call it type 2 diabetes. So before type 2 diabetes, it's called insulin resistance. And then, I mean, type 2 diabetes is a, is a chronic health problem of insulin resistance, but there's sort of this whole world of gray in between uh, where you're insulin resistant, but it's not as bad enough as type 2 diabetes yet. So diet is, you know, it's, it's the typical blame for this maladaptation to high blood sugars. Um, and it's really important to understand, and that's why we're going to talk about this for this entire show, is that this maladaptation um, of the insulin system is not just about how much sugar we consume or whether that sugar is fast burning, you know, simple sugars or slow burning starches consumed with a meal that has protein and lots of fiber. There's also deficiencies of vitamins and minerals that are involved in glucose metabolism that have an impact on insulin signaling. That's a whole separate diet thing. But just briefly, risk of type 2 diabetes in, in, um, increases when we're deficient in most of the B vitamins, especially B3, B6, uh, folate, and B12, vitamin D, chromium, calcium, magnesium, zinc, inositol, which is a vitamin-like compound, alpha-lipoic acid, which is a vitamin-like compound, um, omega-3 fats, carnitine, uh, which is an amino acid, and fiber. So the, the more of those we consume, the lower our risk of diabetes. So just looking at that list right there, we can see that it's not as simple as how much sugar we're consuming but the, the really important thing to understand is that um, there's such a huge accumulation of evidence showing that lifestyle factors either predispose us to these maladaptations in the insulin system or are like the trigger and that often lifestyle you know, and, and diet are linked. And we'll talk about that a little bit towards the end of this episode. But we're looking at more and more data from studies showing that lifestyle is equally as important to diet, including nutrient deficiencies and high simple carbohydrate intake. Um, but there's even some evidence showing that lifestyle may be more important when it comes to insulin sensitivity. Stacy Toth here, your better beauty advocate, y'all. My favorite non-toxic personal care brand is having a site-wide sale. This has only happened 
once before this year, usually once or twice a year. You've heard me talk about my love of Beauty Counter as the leader in clean. So says Sephora, by the way. But I know switching to Safer can be expensive. Part of that is because researching and developing using innovative ingredients costs money, uh, but also testing skincare eight times and makeup nine times for safety and performance against 23 human health endpoints costs money as well. But good news for you. You can get my Beauty Counter favorites 15% off through August 16th, 2021 with the site-wide sale. Uh, so exciting because you know, I love the overnight resurfacing peel and the sunscreen, but Stacey, I've also had my eye on that new think big mascara. Is that part of the sale? Because I would love to grab it, support you and support a certified B Corp working to zero carbon footprint, because that's also a priority. That new mascara is everything. So Yes, get it. But unfortunately, a few items are excluded from the sale. Uh, The new mascara and the new cream eyeshadows being one of them. I wouldn't recommend bundles of skincare either since they're bundled at 10% off and excluded from the sale because you don't get like an additional 15% off them. But you could buy Mm. individual skincare products like your resurfacing peel um, at 15% off. So if you want to grab the mascara... um, at more than 15% off, the other way to do that would be to get Flawless in 5, which is a six-piece makeup bundle that's 20% off, totally customizable. Or you could just get your beloved peel, countersun, anything else you need, um, and just add the mascara and it would be excluded, but everything else would be included. Cool. Awesome. You can shop at beautycounter.com slash Toth, or just choose me at checkout so that I can thank you. And if you want help, I offer free consultations. Just email me, stacy at realeverything.com. It is me personally responding to your emails, I promise. It's not like some sort of bot or something. I'm happy to help. Um, I know a lot of our listeners have skincare issues, and I love being able to work through that with you. And no, this whole thing is not a Columbia House situation. There's no commitments or auto shipments or anything weird. It's just a regular online shop like anything else. And if you aren't sure what you want, I'm happy to send you a sample. Listen, I'm not only the Beauty Counter Fan Club president, but I'm also a client. I know I mentioned sleep earlier, but one of the other things that I know we've talked about extensively before, because when I was lifting, this was super important to me, but talking about how exercise affects the blood sugar regulation, insulin in general. Um, I'm really curious to hear about, especially as it relates to not just um, heavy lifting, right? Which is how I basically mm-hmm. tuned out anything that we talked about previously and focused on heavy lifting because it was what I wanted to do. <laughs> so maybe we could talk about general exercise. Okay, thanks. <laughs> and, yes. Um, so I think exercise out of all the lifestyle factors is probably the least surprising to people, which is why it's such a good place to start. So we know that there's a wide range of benefits from physical activity, not just metabolic health and uh, cardiovascular health, but also things like improving bone mineral density and hormone regulation. One of the impacts of exercise via that hormone regulation is that it actually helps to regulate the full range of hormones that are related to how we access stored energy and how that energy is used. Um, And those are a lot of systems that are regulated through insulin. Exercise actually has a direct 
action on those GLUT4 um, receptors in muscle cells. And so that's a direct way that exercise can help to improve insulin sensitivity. Um, it also, there's a, a window during and after exercise where um, the hormone impact of, of exercise can actually help to get blood sugar into our muscle cells in an insulin independent way, which is also beneficial. Um, and this is one of the, the reasons why exercise is so strongly linked to reduced risk of metabolic syndrome, diabetes, cardiovascular disease. What's really interesting to me is that a large part of how this has been studied is by looking at sedentary behavior. And one of the sort of typical study protocols for this is to take people and put them on bed rest. Um, and so they sometimes study this in, you know, somebody who's uh, in bed rest due to injury or, or illness. But there's also just these clinical trials where they, they take people um, and just put them on bed rest and then measure how that impacts their blood sugar regulation and insulin sensitivity. There was a study done in 1998 where they took highly trained endurance athletes and put them on bed rest for seven to 10 days, and they had a 65% increase in insulin secretion following a glucose challenge test after that seven to 10 days of bed rest, which means it took 65% more insulin to shuttle that same amount of sugar into their cells than it did before they did the bed rest. And this is in athletes. Um, there was, there's been a bunch of studies like this. There was a, a 2007 study in healthy adults that's sort of very similarly, but only after five days of bed rest showed a 67% increase in insulin secretion following a glucose challenge test. Um, what's fascinating is that these studies show that that's also paired with all of the bad things that we associate with uh, insulin resistance. So uh, dyslipidemia, elevated uh, cholesterol is what that means, increased blood pressure. Um, when they look at different kinds of me measures of microvascular function, so how healthy our blood vessels are, they see that that's worse. Um, and so you can see the same mechanisms that link insulin resistance to diabetes and cardiovascular disease happening just after five days of bed rest in a perfectly healthy person. There was a 2019 study that uh, was actually looking at people who were, were in the hospital for injury, and they actually compared, um, they looked at blood, how that impacted insulin sensitivity, similar type of effect, but what they did was they fed half of the patients a normal hospital diet, which our listeners are probably aware is not the healthiest of diets, um, and then they fed uh, their test group a legume-based low um uh, low GI diet, so a low blood sugar impacting diet, and showed that they were able to at least partially prevent the insulin resistance from bed rest with this very slow burning carbohydrate diet. So you can see from this study that there is an interaction between the sedentary behavior and the the poor diet that typically goes when you know if something happens and we're we're being sedentary, typically we're we're not eating our best in that moment. Um, if we're ill or if we've been injured, um, those types of things in real life tend to go together. Um, the other thing is that um, studies have also shown that it doesn't take very much. If you have a desk job, right, that is sedentary behavior 
And we do know that sitting all day uh, is certainly linked to increased risk of diabetes. But studies have shown that a two-minute movement break every 20 minutes can help to regulate glucose and insulin levels substantially. So it also, you know, obviously bad things happen. So if you're on bed rest for something, studies show that that's a good time to work on diet and probably these other lifestyle factors. Um, if you're just going through your life, it's not just about how much exercise you get. It's also about sedentary time. So we want to minimize sedentary time as much as possible. And that's where that setting a timer so that you're getting up, moving, stretching, walking around, uh, for two minutes out of every 20 minutes that you would otherwise be sitting that has been shown to, to really help lower the glucose response after a meal and the, and improve insulin sensitivity. Um, so all of those things together, are you know really good evidence for the importance of an active lifestyle, which includes just you know low level movement throughout the day, as well as some form of more moderately vigorous exercise. I think it's also a great case for um, like a walking desk, a standing desk. Um, they've got those like bike things now that you mm -hmm. <laughs> like put under your desk. Um, because I know from a practical perspective, getting up and moving every 20 minutes when I especially worked in an office was not something that was realistic. But there are ways to do that. And these days, a standing desk, I mean, they make these great ones. I have one on my desk right now where it's just like a lever and I pull it up and down for when I want to like stand and sit. And so doing something like that at your desk could be really beneficial to what you're talking about, Sarah, without necessarily needing to like walk away from your desk every 20 minutes, which yeah. I know for most of corporate America, when they hear you say that, they're like, yeah, no, that's not going to happen. But you can't go uh, find, uh, find every 20 minutes. This is a good opportunity to go to the water cooler, take the flight of stairs up to Joe and accounting and... <laughs> Deliver, deliver the memo. This is me revealing the fact. I was going to say this is sense of panda standard. Painful <laughs> to listen to. <laughs> um, yeah, so, so recognizing that different jobs are um, structured differently, and they don't all allow for freedom of movement throughout the day. Um, I have a a desk elliptical as well as a, I'm, I mainly work either at a standing desk or at a treadmill desk. I mean, I'm just standing with on my treadmill when the treadmill's off. That's how it's a standing desk. Um, and gosh, I think, I think I've had a treadmill desk for eight or nine years, something like that. Like it's, um, it's been a long time and it's been really wonderful for being able to work long days and not, feel that type of physical fatigue that a uh, sitting at a desk job can really create. I think feel like sitting for a long period of time is really exhausting. Um, but I also have a desk elliptical for sitting that it, it just slides under the desk and you can basically pedal your legs. It's a slightly different motion than desk cycles, um, which is, you know, it's just like a pedal versus the, the elliptical motion, which is slightly, a slightly different 
foot pattern. I am moving my hands as though they're my feet on a desk elliptical, realizing that none of this gesticulation is helping our listeners understand what I'm talking about at all, because this is a podcast and audio medium does not, um, does not work with gesticulation. Um, but there's lots of different, what I'm trying to say is there's lots of different options, movement solutions for, for desks. Um, so if you're, you are sitting all day, there's ways that you can hide your feet moving under your desk and no one needs to know. No one needs to know that you're being healthy under there. I will say one of the things that I've started doing during Netflix binges, and you're going to say, Stacey, this is not adequate. And I'm going to say, but it's better than nothing because some days you just want to sit and not move and like binge, whatever it is on Netflix is not only do I like change positions a lot and all that kind of stuff, but I'll lay down and I'll do those like Suzanne summer leg exercises where you have like one leg going up, like making a, a triangle, like a V do you not, I know you can't visually see my arm doing the motion for the leg right now, (laughs) but you know what I'm talking about? Like, Mm -hmm. yeah. Okay. I do a few of those while I'm Netflix binging to make myself feel better. Um, I I think, you know, this is the thing with activity. It's the more you do, the better. And there's no, like, every little bit counts. Every tiny little bit counts when it comes to movement throughout the day. Thank you for validating that for me. It makes me feel better about life. While I can justify my leg movements during a Netflix binge, the next thing that affects our health is one that I struggle with the most. (laughs) (laughs) Ditto. (laughs) Yep. I'm like hanging my head in shame. Like I'm really genuinely trying to work on it. Um, Why don't you, why don't you give us the rundown? Uh, So it turns out that both acute and chronic stress Um, decrease insulin sensitivity, which means they increase insulin resistance. And this is through the combined actions of catecholamines, um, which is happening via the activation of the sympathetic nervous system, as well as glucocorticoids like cortisol, which is happening via activation of the hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis, aka the fight or flight axis or the HPA axis. And it's this combination, you know, in, in in normal times, right, this this stress response increases survival. So it's basically the actions of these hormones together help to prioritize the most essential functions for us to survive whatever thing is stressing us out. So it increases things like perception and decision-making. It improves um, the energy access for our muscles so we can run away. It actually helps to shift immune function to prepare for wound healing. And then at the same time, because this stressful thing is life-threatening, um, it stops uh, prioritizing non-essential functions like other aspects of the immune system or digestion or kidney function or reproductive functions or growth um, or things like bone formation. And so the idea is, and you know, historically, if it was a lion, you would want all of the different biological systems that are going to be important for you surviving that encounter to have all of the resources that they need. And that's what all of these, you know, glucocorticoids and 
uh, catecholamines do as part of the fight or flight response. That's what you want to have happen. And it really doesn't matter if you have reproductive abilities in that moment because you just need to survive. So generally in acute stress, um, that is super beneficial. Uh, Once we have successfully run away from the lion, then uh, the stress response abates and all of these things return to normal. The problem is chronic stress, which is a fairly modern, um, oh, I guess not modern, modern, because uh, obviously chronic stress has been around for several centuries, if not millennia. But uh, chronic stress is a very different situation because it's unrelenting. The, the line never goes away. And so those non-essential functions never actually get the resources they need to function properly. And one of the ways that chronic stress um, is so problematic is that it causes insulin resistance. And it's doing this both through the actions of cortisol and through inflammation, which again is sort of this feature of chronic stress. So this has been studied in a lot of different ways. So um, there's now big epidemiological studies that link chronic stress with insulin resistance. Um, By looking at mechanisms, cortisol directly suppresses the insulin secretion from pancreatic beta cells. And then it also um, suppresses the insulin-mediated uptake of glucose by cells throughout the body by inhibiting the GLUT4 a translocation after insulin binds with the insulin receptor. And then it also inhibits uh, or decreases insulin sensitivity through what are called inflammatory cytokines. These are chemical messengers of inflammation. So we know that inflammation in general decreases insulin resistance. The signaling pathways have, have been identified for a lot of these inflammatory cytokines. So when we have inflammation, which is caused by chronic stress and cortisol, that also is another pathway for suppressing um, the entire insulin system. And that's chronic stress. But what's really interesting is that even in acute stress, cortisol directly suppresses insulin secretion and actually increases glucose output by the liver. Um, So that can even drive uh, blood sugar levels even, even higher. And again, that's potentially an advantage, uh, if we're running away from a lion, but the problem is, is when the, 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 that acute stress becomes chronic, um, then this is something that's happening all the time. So suppressing the insulin system. And there's been a variety of studies, again, sort of directly linking stress with increased risk of diabetes, increased risk of cardiovascular disease, increased risk of metabolic syndrome. And it's generally just through these actions, both directly from cortisol and from the inflammatory cytokines. If you could see my face, it would look like womp womp. (laughs) (laughs) I, I think that it's helpful to remind our listeners, we've talked about stress management, um, on this podcast again, approximately a bajillion times, but it's helpful to remind our listeners, especially right now, um, We talked relatively recently about how the pandemic was impacting mental health and increasing anxiety and depression, just sort of like a community-wide, very, very large effect with about half of the population now having at least one behavior or symptom related to depression or anxiety. And we talked about our own struggles on that podcast. 
Um, I think it's helpful to remember that the stress equation is like a seesaw. And one side is the stress load. We don't always have control over the stress load, right? So especially right now with a pandemic, I feel very much like I have very little control over the things in my life that are causing me stress. Um, when you do have control, those are things that are optional that you can take off your plate or you can ask someone for help or you can say no to something. Those are things that you can proactively do to reduce stress load, but that's not always possible. On the other side of the seesaw are resilience activities. Those are things like getting enough sleep, being active. So funnily enough, the other lifestyle factors we're talking about in this episode, um, things like mindfulness, play, uh, nature walks, um, those things, um, even a nutrient-dense diet. We've talked uh, on the show recently about nutrient deficiencies and how especially vitamin C and magnesium deficiencies can drive the stress response and how stress can deplete those. So how important it is to make sure we're getting enough vitamin C and magnesium, especially when we're under chronic stress. So those things all fall under resilience. And um, when we can't control the load, it's helpful, I think, at least in my life, because stress is also my Achilles heel. Um, it's helpful to focus on what can I do in terms of improving resilience? So how can I prioritize a stress reducing activity to help balance out the, the physiological response to stress? I like that it's a solution oriented response for sure. Um, I think for me, I've talked about how resistant I am to meditation, but also how helpful it is. I mean, when I was measuring my heart rate, I could see immediate improvement in oxygen level and heart rate in just performing those breathing activities. And mm -hmm. that's a reminder. I mean, we have a whole show on the science of med meditation um, to prove to me that it actually works. <laughs> but um, that's something that I find is I, I can do it anywhere. I can do it immediately. And um, it really helps center me from the stress that I'm feeling if what it feels like for me sometimes when I'm like super stressed and I'm trying to like do it all is it's like, you know, I'm kind of in the eye of a hurricane and I feel like, oh, I'm in control and like, I got this, but I'm not. And that's just another way that I'm stressing myself out is making myself be responsible or accountable or in control of like all these different things when really I'm not. And so I find that doing those activities and it can be literally in the middle of the day you know, at my desk or on the sofa, it can also be, you know, before I'm going to bed and trying to really practice the stress reduction from a physical perspective. Um, I'm going to talk also about measuring magnesium and vitamin C and our Patreon. Um, I've, I'm doing a thing right now and I want to talk about it with you, Sarah, but I was someone who takes those supplements and B vitamins um, every single day. And, you know, how many times we've gone over this, I would be like, oh, whatever, I got this. But actually measuring is a thing. <laughs> Finding out if you're sufficient is important. So I want to talk about that in the Patreon. But first...
I'm Dr. Sarah Ballantyne, and my best resource for learning all the ins and outs of the autoimmune protocol within a rich and supportive learning environment is my six-week online course called the AIP Lecture Series. And the next session starts Monday, September 13th, 2021. I know you've been teaching this course for a long time and your students absolutely love it. Can I read some of those testimonies that you received from your last session? Oh, sure. Go for it. Okay. Joy wrote... You have impacted my life in such a great way. You are truly an inspiration. Your amazing research and phenomenal presentations of all your wisdom and knowledge has enlightened my world and has given me new hope. I am eternally grateful. Aww. And Heather wrote, this has been an incredible class. Having been on AIP for a year and a half with the guidance of a dietitian who was well-versed in the diet, I wasn't sure how much I would get out of it, but I have learned so much and I have refined my diet in multiple ways. Your answers in the chat are so thoughtful. The money was so worth it. Thank you. You are doing incredible work and I would recommend this class to others in a second. I'm just so proud that this course is making such a big difference in people's lives. In this six-week course, I teach the entire scientific foundation for both the diet and lifestyle tenets of the autoimmune protocol, and I provide tons of tips and strategies for implementation, refinement, troubleshooting, and mindset. And I also provide individualized guidance and support and connect with every single student within a private Facebook group for the course, and I personally answer every single question posed during every session. Um, today is the last day for early bird pricing, but our listeners can always use the code WHOLEVIEW, that's W-H-O-L-E-V-I-E-W, to get the best discount on the course available. You can learn more and enroll on my website, thepaleomom.com, or go directly to thepaleomom.com forward slash go forward slash A-I-P-L-S. think the next is America's big doozy. I know, Sarah, <laughs> you, you and I are um, hyper aware of our chronic stress and how it affects our health, especially as people with autoimmune. But I think the majority of Americans, I know you have statistics that say less than that. But when I talk to people about their sleep, um, I think that they're like lying on these surveys because people tell me like nobody's getting good quality, adequate sleep. And that has a huge impact on our health. So I think it's important. Uh, we've gotten, we've done dedicated sleep shows before, but as it relates specifically to insulin and blood sugar regulation, I think this is a really interesting topic that I'm excited to hear you dive into. I actually think that sleep is the most important lifestyle factor to focus on for insulin regulation. And uh, one of the things that I'm really excited about is that a couple of studies that I've talked about on the show before that were abstracts presented at conferences, which is basically like preliminary data. It hasn't been peer reviewed yet. Generally, um, most conferences don't have a peer review process in order to accept the abstract. And then the information is presented in more of a short form. It's a, it's a poster, it's a presentation. Um, so a couple of those studies that I think are, are really fascinating have actually since been published and gone through the peer review process. And the numbers are even more um, fascinating. So I'm really excited to kind of get into this because our listeners are probably aware that I, I really think that focusing on sleep is probably one of the biggest things that we could do 
um, in Western countries in general to improve public health. It's, it's so, so vastly important. And, um, you know, I think Stacy, you're right. I think most, there are actually studies that show that people overestimate how much sleep they get and the less sleep they get, the more likely they are to overestimate by a larger amount. So most people will overestimate by like 20 minutes. So if you say I'm getting seven hours, chances are you're really only getting six hours and 40 minutes, but people who get like five hours or less will overestimate how much sleep they're getting by like an hour and 20 minutes. So when sleep is measured with self-reported surveys, that's something to always keep in mind because we tend to think of like how much we slept based on what time we turned out the light, or maybe if, if we're a person who takes a long time to fall asleep, maybe the last time we looked at the clock and then what time the alarm went off in the morning and just go like, oh, simple math, that's how much I slept. But in reality, total sleep is how much we're sleeping minus uh, arousals. So like those brief awakenings in the uh, throughout the night, which are completely normal, that's how much, um, that's usually taken off in order to to talk about how much sleep we're actually getting. So most Americans are not getting eight hours of sleep. Only about 35% of Americans get the recommended eight hours of sleep or more every single night. And in terms of insulin sensitivity, so getting less than six hours of sleep per night, like an estimated 40% of Americans, increases risk of type 2 diabetes by 50%. When we pool diabetes and just impaired glucose tolerance together, so basically pooling that entire gray area between well-regulated insulin and glucose and type 2 diabetes, so that encompasses pre-diabetes, for example, getting less than six hours of sleep per night increases risk of either diabetes or insulin resistance by 2.4 times. That is a huge effect, far bigger of a magnitude of effect than anything to do with diet. And studies that have actually you know, manipulated this and not just looked at sort of the epidemiology show that the effect is, is uh, really stark and occurs over a very short period of time. So most of the studies that have looked at what's called short sleep or partial sleep, they usually have people come and like stay in a center and then they are directed to sleep only four or five hours a night, typically for these studies rather than the recommended eight. And most of those studies show that insulin sensitivity will decrease after, say, um, four to five nights of partial sleep like that by like 15 to 30% is kind of the effect of reduction in insulin sensitivity. But there was a, a really important 2010 study that was healthy men and women, and they did a single night of partial sleep. So a single night of five hours of sleep and showed a 25% decrease in insulin sensitivity the next morning. So this effect happens every single time we don't sleep well, or we go to bed really, really late on a school night or a work night. And studies also show that, you know, similar to stress and exercise, where you see the other things that go along with insulin resistance, that's also happening in the sleep studies. So getting four and a half hours of sleep per night, not only decreases insulin sensitivity, but also increases serum free fatty acids, which is a major contributor to the development of metabolic diseases, um, including diabetes and metabolic syndrome and increased risk for cardiovascular disease. 
And as I mentioned, there's a really fascinating study looking at mechanisms um, where they compared sleep deprivation with, uh, it was a, it was an animal model. It was, uh, performed in dogs with a basically high fat Western style diet. And what they did in this study that was, um, finally just published in 2020, I've been talking about this study for, for like four years now. Um, they took these dogs and what they did was they did a, a night of total sleep deprivation. So that's an all nighter and then measured insulin sensitivity and then they put these dogs on nine months of a high-fat diet, and then they did it again. And what they were expecting to see was that uh, when you combined a pulling an all-nighter with a high-fat Western-style diet, that that would be the worst-case scenario. And that turned out to not be the case. So at the very beginning of the study, before they even put these dogs on, on this Western-style diet... They, the one night of sleep deprivation dramatically reduced insulin sensitivity, and that was actually a bigger effect than nine months of a high-fat diet decreased insulin sensitivity by itself. So if you just compared one night of sleep deprivation with nine months of high-fat diet, the one night of sleep deprivation was worse for insulin than the nine months of a high-fat Western-style diet. But what they also showed was that when they repeated the sleep deprivation after nine months, that that didn't make the insulin sensitivity worse. So it wasn't um, it wasn't that the diet was the main driver. It was the sleep as the main driver. And it's a really interesting study to start to dig into the mechanisms to show that sleep may be the most important contributor to insulin. Also, when we think about how getting inadequate sleep increases appetite, it increases sugar and fat cravings, it um, drives disinhibited eating. It also, there's been studies where they've taken uh, people who've got enough sleep or didn't have enough sleep the night before, given them $50 and put them in a grocery store. And the people who are sleep deprived with their $50 put more calories into their grocery carts than people who had enough sleep. So the people who had enough sleep will go put in more vegetables and the people who didn't have enough sleep will go put in more junk food, even spending the same amount of money. There's also been studies showing that when we're sleep deprived, uh, we tend to gravitate towards more junk food and fast food. And when we get enough sleep, we gravitate towards more fresh fruits and vegetables. So there's also this link between our food choices and our sleep. So it's more of a chicken and the egg kind of situation. And this study helps to start filling the gaps to show maybe it's not diet first, maybe it's bad sleep first. And then that is causing the insulin resistance, but also causing poorer choices um, for, for diet. And then that is compounding the situation. And then also there's obviously a link between how much sleep we get and our stress response. So not getting enough sleep is a chronic stressor and also makes us less motivated to exercise. So all of these things are kind of intertwined. There was a really fascinating study, again, one that I've sort of talked about when it was just an abstract, but it was um, it was finally published in 2016. And what they did was they took newly diagnosed patients, um, 
with type 2 diabetes and they had the study participants keep sleep logs, but sleep wasn't part of the study. So they put the, the participants into three groups. So it was like usual care for a diabetic, a physical activity intervention, or a diet and physical activity intervention. And then what they did was they did the analysis in those three groups, but they actually looked at sleep. And what they found was that the participants who didn't get enough sleep were far more likely to be obese. Um, and again, we sort of talked about obesity as a symptom of other things going on. In this case, it's a symptom of, of insulin resistance, um, a symptom of all of the different sort of collection of factors that are going into this increased diabetes risk. But more importantly, they also showed that insulin resistance was higher. And what they showed in the study was that for every 30 minutes of weekday sleep debt, so this was independent of how much you sleep in on the weekends. This was just how much you sleep, getting seven and a half hours instead of eight on weeknights, increased the risk of insulin resistance at 12 months and follow-up by 41% for every 30 minutes, which is, again, an absolutely huge effect. And then on top of all this, separate studies have shown that it's not just about how much sleep we get, but it's also about the variability in our schedules. So there was a really important 2016 study, a different 2016 study, that looked at variability in what time we go to bed and showed that greater bedtime variability was also predictive of insulin resistance. So it's also, it's important to get enough sleep every single night, and it's important to figure out how to get enough sleep on a consistent schedule. And I think that's one of the hardest challenges for us society-wide. I think we get very used to not getting enough sleep Monday through Friday and then sleeping in on the weekends. That's a really common schedule. But that's sort of exactly what studies show are not good from an insulin sensitivity perspective. And it's helpful, again, to sort of focus on how all of these things are intertwined. There was one study that looked at um, how much people uh, who didn't get enough sleep, so it was five nights of four-hour sleep, showed that their insulin sensitivity decreased, but their cortisol also increased. So all of these mechanisms are also collectively working to decrease insulin sensitivity. So it's important to also understand that exercise helps manage stress, sleep helps manage stress, stress helps improve sleep quality, um, getting enough sleep makes us more likely to want to be active. So lifestyle is also something that we, we can work on all of it together because every step that we take to improve our lifestyle choices helps to make all of the other lifestyle choices a little bit easier to dial in. You talked about so many things and I did not want to interrupt you. And I was just like, wait, wait, wait. Uh, so many like things I want to pull out about what you just said. In particular, the question that I am left with is in the studies where we saw changes to insulin response based on just one night of sleep difference, or in some of the studies, they were looking at a, you know, um, a short amount of time in a smaller range, right? So like mm -hmm. 
I, I know a lot of people who, especially when you have kids, but not just when you have kids, you know, you could be accidentally getting five hours of sleep when you intended to yep. get eight, you know, that kind of stuff. Do they, do they have studies or results that show when you go back to getting consistent sleep where we're seeing the body then make the improvements? And I'm, yes. I'm going to go out on a limb here and say this is not unrelated to stress either, right? Like that is mm-hmm. a stress on your body to have less sleep and to like all the burdens that you just talked about from a system perspective, I'm assuming that that also plays into all the things you also talked about with like food choices. I mean, I can't even, I, I'm like raising my hand when you were speaking to that. Like, yeah, if you, <laughs> if you go to the store tired or hungry, you're going to walk out with things that you might regret later. <laughs> like, those yeah. aren't the choices I intended to make. Um, I have, yeah. I have uh, discovered also that it also works with Instacart. <laughs> if you're tired or hungry and you're browsing an app, you still put silly things in your cart, even if with, you're not physically in the store. With online shopping, you just fill the cart, you walk away and you come back later, Sarah. Have you not, <laughs> have you not learned this? <laughs> no, I guess, I guess I need to work on my strategies. Um, but the answer to your question is yes. So um, several of these studies will have either a two, like two to five days at the end where participants are allowed to sleep as much as they want. And they do, when you start with a healthy participant, they do rebound or re, re, they go back to their starting point. So insulin sensitivity can also improve really dramatically once sleep is prioritized. I think one of the things that's really helpful though, to, to emphasize here. So Okay, two things. Emphasize. Um, It makes a really big difference to prioritize sleep and stress management and activity, and the improvements to insulin sensitivity can happen really quickly. It's a little bit less quick if you're a diabetic, especially if your pancreas is starting to be really, really strained. Um, If you have... um, you know, fewer active beta cells, for example, that's going to be a different type of healing process. But definitely, if you're just in that insulin resistant um, state driven by lifestyle, right, started off as a healthy person put into this unhealthy lifestyle, those people can have their insulin sensitivity restored really, really quickly once the lifestyle is healthier. But it's also helpful to remember, I, I think, Knowing that information, it's a little bit tempting to allow ourselves to get into that cycle of, well, I I won't get enough sleep on these days during the week, and then I'll make sure that I'm getting enough sleep on the weekend. It's helpful to remember, first of all, if you're talking about a five-day workday, that's five days of insulin resistance and only two days to recover. So we're probably not actually fully recovering if that is a chronic schedule. But the other thing to remember is that when we're not getting enough sleep, and we're stressed, we tend to, um, their studies have been shown that we eat something like 20% more on a day that we're really tired compared to a day that we had uh, enough sleep and we're going to crave less healthy foods. And so we're, we're, we're going to be instinctively eating a less healthy diet when we're the most insulin resistant. So that's, that confluence of events is one of the things that's so problematic and and can really start to spiral out of control because also then unhealthy diet can drive the stress response it can 
erodes sleep quality, especially if we're overly relying on sugar and caffeine to keep us up, you know, in the afternoon and evening because we didn't get enough sleep. And then that can erode sleep quality the the next day. So as, as much as I think it's really helpful to know that we can make really dramatic improvements to insulin sensitivity by prioritizing lifestyle factors, it's also on the flip side of that, it can become a very vicious cycle very quickly when we're not prioritizing lifestyle factors. Or, you know, I think it's it's important to be able to give ourselves permission to not be perfect. Uh, that's something that I very firmly believe in. But I think it's helpful to be aware of how quickly um, a couple of nights of bad sleep can kind of spiral into that snowball of badness versus how quickly once we can really work on that consistent sleep schedule and manage stress actively and troubleshoot an active lifestyle and get that dialed in, how quickly that can help set us on the right path. I also love the idea that encouraging yourself to get quality sleep is something that can really be separated from diet culture because Mm -hmm. one of the things that is a snowball for me is trying to find that balance of like, oh, but am I going to become obsessed with these sort of activities and get back into like a different cycle of badness for myself. And I I know we've kind of been talking tangentially about diet culture. And I know, Sarah, you've part of the work that you're doing and all this stuff is um, your extensive blog post. And um, we've done podcasts on it before. And we will, we have ones planned in the near future as well to talk about how that fascination with and obsession to be thin um, is detrimental to so many people's health. And so when I say diet culture, what I'm referring to is this idea that we live in a world that is obsessed with appearances and generalizing or claiming that it's for health when it's not really. And I mean, I don't know how many people, you know, will chug coffee and keep themselves awake longer or even you know there are I mean I think about what was it the 80s when people were taking basically over-the-counter speed um and it was like you know to lose weight and how detrimental that was to their health and like you know there are just so many things where you can see how that would increase their stress reduce their sleep and have negative effects on their health overall just because someone is thin doesn't mean that they're healthy. Just because, you know, someone is overweight doesn't also mean that they're healthy. And I love the idea that when we're starting to think about and tear these walls down in our own brains, because it's not overnight and it um, takes a lot of practice, as there and I know we've both been working on this ourselves for years. Um, realizing how much we were a part of that and it affected us early on. And so now I'm at this point where I can look at something like sleep and tell myself, this is incredible for my health and something I need to do. Like, even though I, you know, want to do this other thing or, you know, I want to watch one more episode of the show or I want to stay up and finish this project that I'm working on or, you know, oh, I just, if I just cleaned these dishes in the sink right now, then I'd feel better when I woke up in the morning. Ultimately, those things end up being detrimental and have nothing to do with the way that I look or 
anything other than true, genuine health factors. And so I think the more things that I can point to like that, where I'm people ask me all the time, like, I want to break free of this and I don't know where to start. I'm overwhelmed. I get sucked into this, but I might be gaining weight and I need to weigh myself every day and blah, blah, blah. Like focusing on sleep is such a great place for people to start. That is my number one, you know, when I am talking with somebody who is really struggling with the sort of on again, off again aspect of you know, whatever it is, whether it's you know autoimmune protocol to help manage an autoimmune disease, or if it's just, you know, trying to eat a Nutrivor diet, you know, people who are, are really having that hard time with, with the willpower aspect, I always like to think of it as a learning curve rather than a transition, but that getting through that learning curve does require dedication. And whenever I'm talking with somebody like that, you know, my very first question is always, well, how's your sleep? And it's, the answer is almost always, I could be doing better. And so I always suggest that as a, as an initial place to start, um, you know, with diet, then it's think about the healthy things that you can add back in rather than the things that you're trying to eliminate, but getting enough sleep can be so fundamental in terms of all of our other lifestyle choices, all of our diet choices, because it helps to regulate so many different biological functions that translate to behavior. It um, can help to reduce addictive behavior. It, I mean, it, it really, there's so much to the benefits of sleep. The reason why we need sleep is because of the blood-brain barrier means that it's really hard for the metabolic byproducts of our brain just thinking all day to leave the brain. And when we sleep, the space between cells actually increases. Our cells, brain cells shrink a little bit. And that allows the brain to flush all of those toxic metabolic byproducts that are built up by just our brains being awesome and doing cool things like thinking and helping us you know, talk and live life. Um, all of those help to get washed out when we're, when we're asleep. And if we don't get enough sleep, those metabolic byproducts can build up in the brain and that can turn on the, the brain's um, innate immune cells, the, the uh, microglial cells, so then we can have brain inflammation and that can change how the brain communicates to the rest of the body and that can become systemic inflammation. Sleep is, is really, really critical for health. There have been, there was a recent study just, I think it was last year, showing that Inadequate sleep can help drive the uh, beta amyloid plaques that um, we see in Alzheimer's disease. So it's, you know, there's a bit of a jump to say getting enough sleep can prevent Alzheimer's from that research, but certainly sleep looks like it's part, at least one player in the development of Alzheimer's. Like it just, the, the more we look at sleep, it, it's so fundamental to our health and it doesn't matter how we look at it. Um, every way that we look at it, it's when we have deep tissue repair and healing. It's when our immune system does most of its regulatory actions to help turn itself off. There have been studies showing that just not getting enough sleep uh, increases inflammation and that if we don't get enough sleep Monday through Friday, sleeping in on the weekends is not enough time for the immune system to return back to normal. So that's it just the more studies that we look at, the more sleep seems to be what I think of as like the linchpin of health. It's like the thing that holds everything else together. And so it's, 
it's definitely the best place to start because getting enough sleep makes all of the other things seem easier. It makes making a healthier choice and choosing a fruit or vegetable instead of junk food feel easier. It makes being active feel easier. It makes, um, it makes stressful life events feel like they're not, not as, um, unmanageable, right? It makes it feel like there, there's a solution and we can navigate it. Getting enough sleep even makes us, uh, it improves cognition and makes us more collaborative in our jobs, which is, or, or in school, which is also amazing. So there's, there's no way that we can look at sleep and see that it's not fundamental to our health. Could not agree more. And if you want to hear more on this, pop on over to Patreon. That's patreon.com slash the whole view. And we'll be sharing more on my personal experiences that I'll talk about more over there. But also just our thoughts on this in general. Thank you for your support. And we'll be back next week. We love providing the Whole View podcast for you as a free resource. You can support the show by using the links and codes we share in our podcast. And we love to read your reviews and chats wherever you listen. And don't forget to share our podcast with your friends and family. Speaking of chat, did you know that you can get exclusive behind the scenes content on Patreon? When you support us with your Patreon membership, you get access to live Q&As and weekly bonus audio but they're not for kids' ears because our bonus content is explicit. You can also stay in touch with us via our social media channels. I'm at Real Everything Blog. And I'm at The Paleo Mom. And we've got more great resources on our websites and in our newsletters. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the Roaring Twenties. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.